1 Corinthians chapter 1. Do you ever think uh, if we had somebody famous who came to our church uh, or somebody influential who came to Christ, um, maybe not even in our area but in our uh, in our land, some somebody that was in charge of television programming, perhaps, or some uh, political leader became a Christian, or some top celebrity, or some great Irish thinker or professor at Trinity College, somebody of influence. Do you think? Well, you know, I think that would be great. That would really start to change our country. Or perhaps, have you ever thought? Who'd want to come and worship here? Could we not jazz it up a bit more? Could we not make it a bit more appealing? It's so plain and so ordinary. Could we not have a bit more razzmatazz in our services? Or perhaps could we, could we not have some, uh, some more sophisticated reasoning, um, more intelligent ministers, uh, could we not have some more powerful presentations, perhaps video presentations, perhaps smoke and mirrors and lights and all the drama? Could we not have a few miracles? If we had a few miracles, maybe people would come and believe. Well, that's not new thinking. It's the sort of thinking was going on in Corinth in the first century. People there loved wisdom. They loved debate. They loved clever arguments. Uh, Some of the people loved a great show, a great spectacle. That's what appealed to them. And they've been, in Corinth, they've been boasting about their various leaders in verses 10 to 17, as if uh, the men, Peter or Paul or Apollos, hold the power. And um, Paul, writing uh, to them, says this in verse 17. He reminds them that the power is in the gospel, that the power is in the cross of Christ, and he doesn't want to see it emptied. And then uh, Paul shows how the message of the cross runs counter to everything you could boast in. He shows that the gospel is folly because it's folly to people, to people who are lost, because God intends it to be. And Paul shows how even the very Corinthians themselves, their existence shoots down the very idea that grasping the gospel is some great intellectual exercise or achievement. And because of all of that, Paul wants them and us to see that it boils down to God. And the gospel is the way it is for a reason. And he wants them not to have confidence in themselves, but to have confidence in God and in God's gospel. And that brings us to our verse this evening, verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And there's, there's three things that I want us to see, and then four applications. And uh, we're going to try and focus very narrowly in on, on the verse itself. So, uh, first of all, the first thing we see is a necessary intervention. Those first three words, but God chose. Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Well, you could maybe trace it back to to somebody who spoke to you, perhaps a friend, perhaps a minister, perhaps a parent, perhaps a neighbor, perhaps a Sunday school teacher, perhaps a youth group leader. Uh, You could trace it back there. Or then you might say, then why why did they become a Christian? And you you trace it back again. Or was it that perhaps you say, well, I understood the message. Or I was at the right place at the right time. Or because I was brought up in a Christian country. Well, it boils down to these three words. Really simple words. But God chose. Oh, there were lots of other factors that came later. But first and foremost is this lovely truth. You're here. You're going to heaven because God chose. But God chose chose. You know, some, some Christians uh, resist this teaching, and they, they argue that, oh no, I chose God, I chose Jesus. But as we look at Scripture, and we go right the way through, we see that the big picture is that God is a God who chooses. He chose to create the world. He didn't have to, but He did. He chose to make man and woman in His image, to relate to Him. He chose to come again to Adam whenever Adam and Eve had rebelled, and to bring this great promise of a rescuer. He chose Abraham of all the people of the earth. He chose Jacob and not Esau. He chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He chose Israel of all the nations of the earth. He chose Jerusalem, as we sang earlier, of all the cities of Israel. He chose David of all the people in Israel to be king. He chose uh, David. And then whenever God the Son comes, what does he do? He chooses, well, he chooses to come into the world, but he chooses 12 disciples. He's a God who chooses. And as we read on through, it shouldn't surprise us then that it it describes our salvation in these terms. Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Isn't that lovely? And then Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us how richly we've been loved. But we ought always to thank God for you brothers loved by the Lord because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. From the beginning. Wonderful. And Jesus himself teaches this. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And this is, this is the message of the Bible from start to finish. It's about a God who chooses. But God chooses. He chooses because we couldn't and wouldn't. We couldn't choose him. 
because we're sinful and we would run from Him and defy Him. And we wouldn't choose Him because we're rebels. And so if we were to have any hope, God had to set His love on us. And with that lovely statement that it's done from before the creation of the world, from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. And He does it on the basis not of anything in us, but on His good pleasure. That's the big picture. Here's this necessary intervention. We're all going headlong for hell, but God chose. And for these Corinthians, it wasn't their great wisdom. It wasn't their great power. It wasn't their great influential influential standing. It wasn't their breeding. It wasn't their behavior. Here they are. They're beginning to boast. Oh, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and oh, no, I follow Cephas. And then you've got some smarty pants. He says, well, I follow Christ, you know. Um, He says, well, no, 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 it's not down to you. I follow. There they are. But, no, Paul says, but God chose. Think uh, later on in, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, this is what some of you were. You were liars, you were adulterers, you were, you were drunkards, you were homosexual offenders. That's what you were. But God chose. What a necessary intervention. Why are they Christians? Because God chose. Why you? But God chose. And without God choosing, we would never have come to Christ. And it's just a, a really helpful little phrase to anchor us um, and to, as we'll see in a minute, to give us reasons for, for rejoicing. The problem with the Corinthians is that they're reveling in the wrong thing. They're patting themselves on the back instead of reveling in a God who chose them. So here's this necessary intervention. Here's a phrase to rejoice in. But God chose. Secondly, it's a humbling intervention phrase goes on, and the verse goes on, but God chose the foolish things. Well, who really wants to admit to that? Um, And it goes on, not many, or it says earlier, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. This is Paul's whole point in this section. He's wanting them to see, look, you've got nothing to boast and don't think you're so great. God didn't come and say, right, there's some, I've got to save some people in Corinth, right? I want the real movers and shakers. There they are there. Those are the people that will really tie down this city for me. That's it. There's the, the chief uh, official. Uh, there's the mayor. There's the local politician. There's uh, the leader of the community. Uh, no. They weren't influential. Oh, there's the richest people. There's the great businessman. No. (laughs) Paul says, God chose the foolish. It's humbling, isn't it? And this is Paul's whole point. Both God's method and God's manner in choosing are designed to remove boasting totally. Let's think a little bit about Paul's, or God's method. The cross God has deliberately planned the gospel to be offensive and humbling. Look at verse 19. For it is written, 
Well, look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And then verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. God doesn't play to the crowd, does he? He doesn't think, right, here's what the Jews are really interested in, so I'll gear this towards them. And there's what the Greeks, there's what they're looking for. I'll, I'll gear this towards them. The, 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 the Jews... The Jews were proud of their religious heritage and delighted, as it were, in earning salvation. They looked for signs, for miraculous signs and displays of God's power that showed that God favored them as a people and God was amongst them. And what do they get? They get a dead man on a cross. You know, crucified Messiah. Uh, One writer calls it, uh, he says it, it's a contradiction in terms. Crucified Messiah, or, or Christ crucified. Christ means Messiah. The promised one, the rest, you're crucified like a criminal. He says it's a contradiction in terms like fried ice. The two, those two words don't go together, he says. He says you can have a Messiah, or you could have a crucifixion, but you couldn't have both. The Jews just thought that. They just couldn't get over it. They, they stumbled at it. And the, the Greeks... Oh, they loved. They, they loved wisdom. Uh, they loved powerful arguments. And their idea of God was that God was lofty and distant. And the spiritual realm had little to do. Pure spirituality had nothing to do with this messy world. And that God would come into the world and live here amongst us ordinary folk and be a carpenter and go and be nailed on a cross. That's just ludicrous as far as they were concerned. One, one writer says, No human being in his right mind would have dreamt up God's scheme for salvation. Through a cross, it's too preposterous, too humiliating for a God. You know, it's almost proof, isn't it, of the truth of the Bible. Would any human being have dreamt up this scheme of salvation? It, it, it's so against our thing, so counterintuitive that God would come into the world to die for us. Oh, we wouldn't come up with that sort of a scheme. And God's manner of salvation, God choosing, it completely humbles us, doesn't it? He chooses the cross and he chooses the objects of his love. And it's designed to remove any possibility of somebody standing on the day of judgment and patting themselves on the back and getting glory. Well, I, I was worthy of God's salvation. I earned it. I contributed to it. I was noble and influential. And because of that, God, God picked me. God looked down through the, the corridor of time and he saw what a wonderful person I was and how worthy I was of salvation and what a contribution I would make to his team. And so he picked me. Nonsense. God didn't choose the influential, the powerful. He says, not many. And God's salvation is done in such a way that he gets the glory. 
It's designed to contradict our human thinking. The only way is by humble faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not going to come humbly, you can't come at all. It's a humbling intervention, but God chose the foolish. The, the great criticism of the, uh, of, well, of the early church, uh, one writer, a man called Celsus, uh, who was a skeptic and uh, critical of the Christians, said this. He said, Christians usually flee headlong from cultured people who are not prepared to be deceived but they trap illiterate folk. Their instructions are like this. Let no one be educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evil. This is what he's saying the Christians say. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who's a child, let him come boldly. He's he's sort of mocking Christianity and saying, you don't want clever people. You don't... You don't want the great intellectual people of our day. Um, And then another writer comments that the the great thinkers of that age, men like Seneca and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, uh, Pliny the Elder, his adopted son Pliny the Younger, these great men, they spoke scathingly of uh, Christianity. They either rejected it or outright, or they, they had nothing to do with it. They didn't even mention it. And, and uh, another historian, a more recent one, says this. And you can hear his skepticism and his disdain for Christians. He, says, he speaks about these, the, these, these ancient historians who were alive in the early centuries of Christianity. Those among them who condescended to mention the Christians Consider them only as obstinate and perverse enthusiasts who who exacted an an implicit submission to their mysterious doctrines without being able to produce a single argument that could engage the attention of men of sense and learning. So this man writing says, yeah, early Christians were thick and they couldn't produce a single argument to convince men of intelligence and sense and learning. That was the the appreciation or the the view that people had of Christians. Um, But isn't that what God says here? Isn't that what Jesus did? He he picks 12 ordinary men to be his disciples. He didn't pick the great intelligentsia of Jerusalem to be his disciples. He picked fishermen. He picked a tax collector. He picked, he picked a, a variety of people. Um, yes, he chooses Paul because it says here that, he, that he, not many, not many, he doesn't say not any, but not many who are wise. Paul, a man of great intellect, and yes, Christ chooses him and, and saves him by and large, it's the ordinary folk that are chosen by God. So, and they're described here by Paul. We're described as lowly, as despised, and nothings. Humbling, isn't it? It's a humbling intervention. 
but doesn't it give us confidence? Verse 30, the NIV admits a, a little word, but, but it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's nothing in me. It's nothing in you. We didn't bring any brains to the show. He did it. It's because of him. It's all because of him. And, and how much thankfulness we should have for our salvation. And, and yet we need to, to note that it's not stupid and it's not foolish. It is perfectly rational. Once you're in and once your thinking is transformed by the Holy Spirit, you see how sensible, how logical, how perfectly wise it is. I, I love how Paul describes this in, uh, in verse 24 and 25. He said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, so not every Jew, not every Greek thought that it was, that it was ridiculous, but those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. They, they wanted a sign. They wanted something powerful and glorious. They got a crucified Messiah. But once their eyes were opened, they could say, Wow! What incredible power! What wondrous glory! And then the, the Greeks and their longing, their longing for wisdom. Whenever their eyes are opened as they're called to Christ, they say, What rich wisdom! How else could God do it? We owed everything, but we couldn't pay. So God himself says, I'll pay, but how can God pay? God, the payment is death for sin. And God can't die, so God takes on human flesh and form and comes into this world and pays the price for our sin. Wonderful wisdom. Incredible wisdom. And how deeply satisfying it is. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. To those who are saved, here's true wisdom. Here's true power, and it's deeply satisfying, and it's deeply transforming. Incredible wisdom. It's the only solution. So here's a humbling truth that but God chose the foolish. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And then thirdly, it's an exalting truth or an exalting intervention. We're humbled. God didn't pick us because of our great contribution to his kingdom. But what a great exalting truth. But God chose. But God chose. God chose you. Verse 30, you are in Christ. And in Christ, you have, you've got wisdom from God. You've got righteousness and holiness and redemption. Those three words are, in this case, three, just three different ways of saying the same thing. You've got these riches. You've got salvation. You, sitting here, because God set his love on you, you've got this, this great treasure. The world might think us foolish. The world might doubt our intellect, but we've got wisdom 
from God. We have treasure and power from God. We have all this, and it's all because of Him and not because of you or me. He's done it all. I'm a useless sinner, but God chose the foolish and the weak. Isn't it lovely? And so we praise God, and we want people to see how great Christ is. But God chose. Let let me make four applications as as we draw this to a close. First of all, well, there's, a, there's a one do and three don'ts. First of all, do rejoice. Do rejoice. Rejoice in his choice. Oh, there's lots of questions, aren't there? We wonder, well, if God chose me, then the fact that my, my friend, my neighbor, my son, my daughter, my husband, whoever, doesn't, doesn't yet trust Christ, does that mean God hasn't chosen them? Well, we're not told that. We don't know that yet. And we've got all sorts of questions about how does this work? But do they just sit and do nothing until God chooses them? No, we plead with them. We pray for them. We invite them to church. We do all those things. But this gives us reason to rejoice. It gives us reason to rejoice for ourselves and for others. You have reason to rejoice in your salvation because the choosing that removes any possibility of boasting removes any possibility of losing. The choo- God's choice that removes any possibility of you boasting because you contribute absolutely zero removes any possibility of losing your salvation. You contributed nothing to it. You can take nothing from it. So you can rejoice. God chose. Not wonderful. But it gives us reason to rejoice for our family and friends. What does it come down to in the end? Why are you a Christian but God chose? How will they ever become a Christian? Will it be because they come to church some week and there's a fantastically rich, powerful, intellectual argument from one of the preachers? That are here? Will it be because you convince them with some, some great winsome way or words? That might be what God uses, but it'll be because God chose. And that's what'll lie at the bottom of it. And does that not give us hope? We might think, oh, they'll never come. I was speaking to somebody recently, they said, oh, they'd never believe. But God chooses. Does that not give us reason to rejoice? Even those, those, those three simple words. And then, secondly, don't become proud. We need to remember that not only are we sinners, but God chooses the foolish and the weak things of the world. He chooses the foolish and the weak things of the world to, to shame the strong and the wise and the powerful. So, we, we, we can't look down. We can't think that we are better than others. We can't become proud. And part of sometimes our pride is that we get offended when the world treats us as idiots. Well, you know, it says here, God shows the foolish things. You know, why would we expect that the world thinks that the crucifixion of Jesus is ludicrous? 
why would we expect them to think that people that follow a crucified Savior are intelligent and worth their time of day? So, let's, let's watch our, our, our sense of self-esteem. Let's delight in what God has done for us and what God has given to us and get our, our joy from there. Thirdly, don't change the message. This takes us back to where we started. One writer says, Had God consulted us, we would have given him a more workable plan. Something that would attract the sign seeker and something that would attract the lover of wisdom. As it is, in his own wisdom, he left us out of the equation. He didn't consult us. Uh, and yet sometimes we, we think that, well, no, if we could present this gospel differently, if it wasn't quite so offensive, if we could marshal uh, much more display of power, if God would just come down and do something miraculous here on a Sunday morning, then everybody would believe no. In conversation with somebody last night, and uh, they had asked me to read something that was on the internet and to, to, to ask me what I'd thought about it. And the piece that I was reading seemed to be doing its utmost to remove any offense from God's opinion to make God's opinion entirely palatable. It was on issues of sexuality. To make God's opinion entirely palatable to the world in which we live. Uh, and I thought, well, we can't do that. Um, the very message of a God who's sovereign over everything is utterly offensive to people who want to be sovereign in their own lives. We can't make it palatable. To say to people, you are so hopelessly lost that you can't do anything to impress God, you need God himself to die for you, is utterly offensive to people. We can't make it palatable. Uh, we can't change the message. God has designed it to be the way it is because people need to be broken and humble. They need to be offended. They need to climb off their high horse and get down on their knees. They don't need their intellects tickled. They don't need their, their eyeballs massaged with great miraculous performances. They don't need it. It wouldn't work. Think of all the people who saw the miracles coming out of Egypt. They weren't convinced. They died in the desert. Think of the people who saw Jesus' miracles, heard him teach, God the Son teaching. And many, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. The miracles... Uh, that had been performed, and you were performed in Tyre and Sidon, you'd have, sorry, woe to you, yes, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the miracles had been performed, and you'd been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. He says, you've seen all this stuff, but you did nothing with it. So people need this gospel. They need to be humbled. It's not meant to be appealing people will be put off by it, rattled by it, irritated by it. Now, that doesn't mean that we can be offensive and go up to people and say, you're going to rot in hell. You don't say, oh, well, you know, you're just irritated because the gospel isn't an appealing message. That's not it. We're to be winsome. We're to be gracious. We're, we're to have our words seasoned with salt, all of those things, but we can't change the message. 
in any shape or form. We can't skirt over parts of the message that people in our world find offensive. We need to have confidence in the power of the cross because it's what breaks people's pride. It's what humbles them. And if we change it, we shortchange them. So we can't change anything and we shouldn't change anything. And then fourthly, don't ignore the lowly. Sometimes Christians kind of have an obsession with Christian celebrities. Um, or would it be good if so-and-so? Think what happened if they became a Christian. But what does it say here? Not many who are influential. Not many who are wise. Not many who are powerful. Instead, it's the lowly and the despised and the nobodies and the nothings that God works amongst often. And if this is God's pattern, we shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't ignore it. We should look to go to the people that are despised and cast aside by our society, that are looked down on by our world. We should look to go to them uh, with the message of the cross um, as much and maybe even more so than others because God has been working in their circumstances to show them that life's not all it's cracked up to be and that they're not in control as much as they think they are. So, four applications. Let's go back to the top one. Do rejoice. Do rejoice in this sovereign God who chooses and in His choice. What a wonderful salvation we have. Let's, if we're able to, let's stand and pray.